The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Turn us on and the satisfaction's guaranteed. Frank discussion with passion on CJD 800. Welcome to Passion, a show all about love, sex, and relationships. Tonight, it is the Vagina Dialogues. All evening long, we'll talk vulvas. We'll talk female sexual health. After 10.15, and we will be joined by Dr. Natasha Raja, who is doing a study on menopause and Alzheimer's. So you may, if you're a middle-aged woman, you may want to help out the scientific community. But first, let me introduce you to the newest member of the Passion team, Dr. Angela Lee. She is a resident in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Toronto. She focuses on sexual health and family planning and is here to answer your questions about all things having to do with female sexual health. Uh, Dr. Lee, so glad to have you on the program. Hi, Dr. Lori. Uh Thanks so much for having me on tonight. Oh, very excited. Uh, So one of the first things I wanted to talk about was COVID because, um, I don't know, you hear things about, you know, maybe it's not such a great time to get pregnant or, uh, like, how does COVID affect pregnant women? Do we have any um, data on that or what have you seen in your practice or what are the fears So, I mean, I understand that COVID is obviously a time that's of heightened concern for any pregnant woman. Um, I would say that, though, in general, uh, many of the OBGYNs that I work with have uh, gone out of their way to make sure that they adjust as appropriate for this time. Um, So uh, a lot of moving appointments to uh, phone appointments, unless it's necessary to be in person, is a big adjustment that we've done. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, just accommodating in hospital for a lot of the visits. Um, There was a while of time when uh, women were were unfortunately not allowed to bring partners, but obviously that's changed now. So luckily, most women are still allowed to bring with them at least one birth partner. Um, And just, you know, kind of in our day to day adjusting for how we wear the PPE during the deliveries. Um, But overall, I think that um, it's it's understandable to be concerned, but there are many resources available online um, for how to navigate your pregnancy during COVID. Okay. And... um, uh, the if you you know whoever your obstetrical care provider is whether that's an obstetrician a midwife I think that um, you know many of these providers have gone out of their way to uh, educate themselves during this pandemic to be able to provide the best care that they can for their patients. Right. I remember hearing um, reading a directive <clears throat> early on. Uh, where they were recommending maybe not such a great time to get pregnant. And, of course, you know, sometimes you can't plan these things. It's not like, uh, you know. Exactly. Uh, so, but it was kind of scary. And, and, like, being getting pregnant for the first time is scary enough. During a pandemic, I would imagine that that would freak out a lot of new uh, new parents. Exactly. And I, I honestly have so much empathy for all of my patients who are navigating, you know, such a vulnerable time in their lives that's supposed to be so exciting, but kind of in the scary backdrop of, you know, being in the middle of this worldwide pandemic. And I would, you know, I we never discourage anyone to purposely to try and avoid conceiving during this time. I think that you're very right. It's obviously something not uh, that you can't control most of the time. But even for women who are actively trying, I don't think there's any... Um, you know, extreme reason that they shouldn't be uh, continuing to try to get pregnant if that's, uh, you know, in their in their family planning goals. Um, You know, it's just about being careful and, you know, what they do in their day to day lives and taking all the appropriate precautions. Are they an at risk group? Are pregnant women an at risk uh, considered an at risk group like the elderly, for example, for COVID? 
So um, there is some preliminary data that they might be at increased risk uh, for more severe cases of COVID. Um, When you're pregnant, your body alters its physiology to um, to, uh, create greater stress load on your heart, essentially, because your circulating blood volume increases. Mm -hmm. So by, you know, therefore, in severe cases of COVID, perhaps if it's combined with a comorbidity of an underlying lung disease, um, they would potentially be at higher risk of respiratory decompensation. But again, this is all preliminary data. This is all very new to everyone. And there, um, at least in Canada, there fortunately haven't been too, too many cases of um, pregnant women who have been infected with severe cases of COVID. Right. I think I've only heard about one or so that, that did recover. But uh, uh, yeah, we're not hearing too much about that. And like you said, it's still so new that the data is uh, it, I mean, there's not enough of it to categorically exactly. say anything, right? Exactly. I think irregardless, though, um, the general recommendation is that if a pregnant woman does know that she has COVID, um, they should be ideally delivering uh, their baby in a hospital just to be able to have that infrastructure Uh and, um, you know, have those precautions just in case something does happen. Right. Great advice uh, from Dr. Angela Lee. She is our new addition to the Vagina Dialogue tonight. If you have questions about female sexual health, uh, you can text us at 514-800. Of course, you know, you can always call in at 514-790-0800 if you want to speak directly uh, to the doctor. And we'll talk, we could talk about anything that has to do with female, uh, female health, whether it's uh, menstrual pain, smell, a lot of women have questions about that we could talk about the structure uh i you know we could talk about uh, the sex stuff too like orgasms and uh things like that uh, so if you've got anything you'd like to ask uh, we've got her on at 514-800 and like i mentioned after 10 15 we're just going to uh, take a few minutes and find out about a, a study on menopause and uh alzheimer's which i think uh for many of our our listeners who are uh, middle-aged, uh, this is something that could uh, potentially concern you. So one question is um, men- about menstrual pain. How do I know when the menstrual pain is not normal? So I'm assuming so, it's like the, you know, how much pain is too much pain kind of thing? Yes, for sure. Um, you know, I think everyone's experience of pain is very subjective and, Ultimately, it just comes down to how much the menstrual pain is affecting your daily quality of life, essentially. Um, if you find that your menstrual periods are debilitating on you know, a regular basis where every month you're consistently having to take days off of work or mm. off of school to get through it, that's probably an indication that it's time to see a healthcare professional just to um, get assessed and see um, if there's some treatment that can be of help to you. Because I think that especially, you know, um, as women, we often, you know, don't talk about it because our moms maybe have the same experience with their periods. So we normalize a lot of that. And um, it's not something that's very commonly discussed. You know, I I think a lot of girls grow up trying to hide their period and being in fear of, you know, people finding out that they have their period. So I think that, (laughs) and I'm such an advocate, honestly, just for people, you know, opening the conversation and you know, like taking the onus to realize when, um, you know, something is seriously impacting their quality of life. And I think that's kind of when you know it's time uh, to see someone, because I would not say it's normal for a menstrual period to be debilitating more often than not. 
Right. Like I, I knew one person where the, the menstrual pain caused so, like so much pain that it was throwing up and passing out from the pain. Like that's not normal. <laughs> yes, that is that is not normal. Exactly. So what are, um, in, in generally speaking, as someone who has like debilitating pain, what are the things you look at or look for? So, um, I mean, I think it starts with kind of just an initial assessment, uh, getting a good clinical history of what exactly is going on with your periods. You know, have they always been painful and debilitating since the beginning of time since you've had them? Or is that a more recent thing? Because that kind of changes the list of differential diagnoses that you would look at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that when you when you get a good clinical history and kind of tease out what exactly it is that's going on with the person's period, whether they have regular or irregular periods, whether the pain precedes or is only during the menstrual period. It, it, that, that clinical information is really what I find right. to be key One. in terms of delineating what potential therapies might help someone. Okay. Um, we, so I think, yeah, sorry. Sorry, we're just going to take a short break. We've got you all night long, so we can uh, have lots of questions uh, for you. Dr. Angela Lee is here answering your female sexual health questions. And coming up, Dr. Natasha Raja will also uh, join us on the Vagina Dialogues. A safe place to work out the kinks in any relationships. It's passion with CGAD 800's Dr. Lori Batito. <laughs> the Vagina Song for... The Vagina Dialogues, Dr. Angela Lee, I hope that song is not offensive to you. It's just, you know, for fun. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Bring a little levity to a to a, a more medical show. Dr. Angela Lee is uh, our guest tonight and uh, hopefully will be a regular guest for the Vagina Dialogues answering your questions. But we also have on the line, and I want to introduce uh, our listeners and you, uh, Dr. Lee, to Dr. Natasha Raja who is working on a study on menopause and Alzheimer's at the Douglas Brain Imaging Center. And she's looking for middle-aged women for her study. But before we jump on that, we will find out what the study is about and how you can help science. Dr. Raja, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to join you. Oh, it's a pleasure Um, to have you. Please tell us about this program and tell us why it's important. Yeah, for sure. Um, so maybe your listeners don't know, but two-thirds of cases of Alzheimer's disease are in women. And it's really not understood why women are at greater risk of developing hmm. Alzheimer's later in life. And so my research program, which is funded by the CIHR, and I hold the CIHR Chair in Sex and Gender Research and Neuroscience, um, is aimed at understanding why women are more at risk of Alzheimer's disease. So we're doing a study right now at the Douglas Research Center um, and McGill University to try and understand the neural basis of this. So we're looking for women between the ages of 18 and 65 to participate in our research, Um, women particularly with a family history of Alzheimer's disease. We want to understand whether there are early signs of memory decline in the brain systems in these women at midlife. And we have a hypothesis that when women enter menopause, um, two of the brain regions that are critical for memory, called the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus, Mm -hmm. they're enriched with estrogen receptors in the brain. And so we have a hypothesis that with menopause, due to the decline in estrogen, um, there might also be alterations in how these systems function. 
And so we want to see whether or not women who are at risk for Alzheimer's disease because they have family members with Alzheimer's disease or they have a gene that puts them at high risk for Alzheimer's disease show differences in brain function and brain connectivity while they're doing memory tasks. Mm. And the reason this is very important is that Alzheimer's disease is a neurodegenerative disease, and we really want to identify individuals at risk as early as possible, and midlife is a critical time to intervene. So Uh, that's why we're doing this research. Has there been research at all to to look at women who are on estrogen replacement therapy uh, versus those who haven't? Yeah, there has been a lot of research on this. It's quite... um, there's a lot of debate around this. There was a women's health study that was done in the United States um, a few years ago. And what they found was HRTs, um, they didn't really do anything for cognition. However, mm-hmm. the participants that they recruited for that study were late life. So they were past menopause. So they were at 65 and older. And so when you think about it, introducing something to the body that it's been used to not having may not really benefit the system. Hmm. So there is some uh, hypothesis that there's a critical period for HRT and perhaps introducing HRTs earlier on, so at perimenopause, may be beneficial. So there are researchers looking into this in animal models and in human studies. Right. And a lot of doctors also prescribe oral contraceptives. When women come into um, the gynecologist or the OBGYN and they complain about you know, um, mood disorders or mood fluctuations around perimenopause mm-hmm. or they're starting to, starting to show some sort of cognitive effects. Um, often they are put on oral contraceptives to kind of ease uh, the transition. And so there is some, like, self-reported effects of this, but there hasn't really been a clinical trial to investigate that. Right. So part of our study, so we are trying to do a large catchment study. We're looking for up to 400 participants. And we really are looking at individuals that have that have um, reproductive health history of oral contraceptive use or HRT use mm-hmm. to maybe get some preliminary data that may point to the direction that there might be some benefits to for early use of HRTs and right. oral contraceptives. Which is so confusing, I have to tell you, because as a menopausal woman myself, uh, and had having struggled with the decision, do I, don't I uh, go on uh, hormone replacement? When I remember growing up and my mother's age, all women went on HRT automatically. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even a question. It's like, oh, you, you know, you reach menopause, here's some HRT. Uh, And now, of course, uh, doctors asking a whole bunch of questions. And it's like, do you really want to? And here are the risks. And so it's really hard as a woman, you know, looking at this saying, okay, like, it's not just my dry vagina I have to worry about. I have to worry about my brain. And I have to worry about so many other things. Uh, And and then weigh that with the risks that it gets to be quite confusing, I think, for us women. It is, and there's not been a lot of research into women's health, as you know, and especially the the link between women's health and reproductive health history and cognitive function later in life. And that's really what my research is trying to bridge to try and understand um, cognitive function from a reproductive health lens. And so there is a lot of confusing literature out there on HRT use, and the thing is there's so many different types of HRT. Right. so it really depends on what type of HRT you're on. Is it an estradiol only? Is it estradiol with progesterone? And so there's not enough science behind this. And so we're hoping to contribute to that type of work. 
um, and also look more directly at risk for Alzheimer's disease in this research program. I think that uh, Alzheimer's is something that absolutely needs uh, <laughs> lots and lots of research. It's devastating for people who have it and families, and we hear about it quite a bit. So anything that can help uh, us learn more is a good thing. So yeah. Dr. Raja, how can, uh, if people are interested in, uh, in being part of this study, what do they have to do? How do they qualify? So you could go to our website, so my lab's website, rajalab.com, so R-A-J as in John, A-H, lab, L-A-B, dot com. Okay. And when you go to that website, there's a link for participate. And when you go there, there's a bunch of information about the study. And there's a link to enroll. And you just provide some basic medical health um, questionnaire data, and we'll contact you um, if you're eligible to participate. And we'll follow up. And there's two visits to participate in this study. So the first visit, you're asked to come into my lab and you're asked a bunch of questionnaire data. So uh-huh. you just sit there and you talk to one of my research assistants and they collect some data. Um, and then we contact you again to come for a brain imaging study. So that's the exciting part. Some people are nervous in the MRI scanner, but it's actually quite comfy. <laughs> for me, I've been in there quite a few times and it puts me to sleep because it's a bit cozy. Uh-huh. But I'm sure it's a bit... Um, you know, it's a bit different for people, um, but you're in there and you do a bunch of memory tasks while you're in there. And we actually see your brain in action. So cool. So we can <laughs> tell when you're successfully encoding or remembering information. And we're trying to understand how your brain does that and how it might differ during different stages of menopause. So it's really cool research. And you get a picture of your brain in photo quality so you could frame it and show your family. <laughs> <laughs> That's the part that enticed me the most because I'm joining the study too. Uh, awesome. I'm gonna, yeah, I want the picture of my brain. I think that is the coolest thing. It'll go right along with the saved picture of my kids in utero. You know, we did our yeah. ultrasound. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, and you of course are reimbursed for your time as well. So you know, there is some financial compensation in addition to the brain picture and helping science. That's great. Um, I'm just wondering, Dr. Angela Lee, our uh, resident and obstetrics. Uh, and gynecology. Do you have any questions for Dr. Raja at all? No, I mean, that's actually a really fascinating study. I think there's a lot of interest in the um, OBGYN community about HRT and kind of the optimal timing. So I think it's actually fantastic that you're doing this um, clinical trial in it. Yeah, thank well, you. That'd be great. We uh, we thank you so much for for your time and and help in explaining this in such a great way. Uh, and I hope uh, some of our listeners who are uh, women, middle aged women especially, will join the study and will advance science together. How's that? That would be great. <laughs> thank you very much for your time. All right, you take care. Uh, take that's care. Dr. Natasha Raja, and again, that website is Raja Lab. Dot com r a j a h lab dot com if you uh, want to see if you qualify uh, for for the study. All right, we've got a bunch of questions here uh, lined up. Thank you for sending them at 514-800. Of course, you can always call in at 514-790-0800, and uh, you will speak directly to Dr. Angela Lee. She is a resident in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Toronto. She focuses on sexual health and family planning and answers your question tonight. Uh, So this uh, person asks, what is lichen planus, and how do I resolve this problem? So lichen planus is um, a fairly um, common uh, disease of the vulva. 
So it's essentially a chronic inflammatory and immune-mediated disease, and it can affect not only the vulva, but also um, pretty much any other areas of the skin. It can also affect the nails and the hair. Um, so typically the hallmark of it is these um, these flat top sort of um, violet to red colored plaques and papules um, that have a very distinct sort of reticulated white scale on top. Um, so these are I, typically more common in other areas of the body, but they can also appear on the vulva. So um, a very common symptom that many people will have is uh, a lot of itching. Um, the the plant the the plaques can also be a bit painful as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so typically, the most common um, treatment for these um, these lesions once they're diagnosed uh, would be a steroid cream. Okay. Um, and it's certainly something that um, many women deal with, but um, it's not something that you commonly see. Uh, mentioned in media no definitely not the media uh coming up uh, with dr angela lee we'll talk about premenstrual dysphoric disorder pmdd and many more questions that you have up until 11 o'clock on the vagina dialogues right now let's turn it over to the cjd 800 newsroom the following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. From the pleasure and the politics to the hang-ups and the heartbreak, you're listening to Passion, CJD 800. The Vagina Dialogues tonight with Dr. Angela Lee, who is a resident in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Toronto. She focuses on sexual health, and she's here to answer your questions. Uh, So here's one. Can we also talk about the mental health aspects of menstrual cycles and things like PMDD? I feel like those things are so stigmatized. Yeah, um, this is an excellent question, and I'm really happy you brought it up. Um, So PMDD stands for premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Um, It's essentially a severe form of something else you might have heard of before, PMS, which stands for premenstrual syndrome. Mm -hmm. So with premenstrual syndrome, um, the typical symptoms begin anywhere from 7 to 14 days before your period starts. And common symptoms can be things like bloating, mood swings, um, some eating, uh, eating habit changes, as well as breast tenderness. Um, so those would fall in the spectrum of the more mild symptoms in line with premenstrual syndrome. Right. But when it gets to the spectrum of PMDD, that's more where you get more psychiatric symptoms. So things like depression, um, exacerbated anxiety, or extreme mood lability or um, anger. Um, And I think that's kind of where the delineation is, because really it is a spectrum, but um, to to truly call it a diagnosis of PMDD, it has to be uh, debilitating to your life. Right. Well, I knew a a woman who she was describing that three days out of the month, she is so depressed, she cannot get out of bed and she doesn't want to see anybody. She cries for three days straight. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's tough. It's tough on her. It's tough on the family. She doesn't know how to, uh, you know, how to cope with this. What are the recommended um, treatments then for PMDD? For sure. So I I think when you get to the point where it's a diagnosis of PMDD, um, usually the treatment that's recommended is uh, medications, particularly um, a class of medications called SSRIs, which stands for 
effective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Mm-hmm. Um, so this uh, class of medication is a really common one used to treat depression. It's one of the first-line medications um, because essentially a lot of what you're treating is in line sort of with these psychiatric symptoms. Um, some people also find benefit from ovulation suppression, so using things hmm. like a birth control pill to avoid ovulation. Okay, so they would take it right through the month, in other words, and would not get a period. Exactly. So you kind of skip that sugar pill week and just go on to a new pack. Uh-huh. Okay. I think, uh, yeah, you're right. And this, this texture is right. It's quite stigmatized because, you know, all you hear about are, are jokes, right? Male jokes about my mm-hmm. crazy wife is PMSing or, or it's that crazy time of month. But it's a serious suffering. This is not a joke. It's It's suffering for these women. Oh, absolutely. And I, I honestly hate that traditional kind of, oh, she must be on her period yeah. and joking about PMS because for some people, it's genuinely a very debilitating condition condition that they have. And I think it just adds to the stigma. Absolutely. All right. Here's another question for you, uh, Dr. Lee. What can you tell me about perimenopause and weight gain? I can't exercise like I used to. I already have osteoarthritis in the knees and I got that from too much exercise over the years. I'm 50. So she's close to menopause in the, in uh, right at 50. So what happens to us that we tend to gain uh, weight uh, around, around menopause in the end a few years before then? Yeah, so I mean, we do know that after menopause, uh, women's metabolism, just their basal metabolic rate does tend to go down. Um, So this can account for some of the differences in weight gain, because essentially, you could keep the same eating and exercise habits that you always have. But because your body is burning less calories at a baseline, just to keep on functioning, it can lead to weight gain. So it's certainly a very common complaint that many patients have. Um, In terms of keeping up uh, exercise, I would highly encourage it. I think, um, you know, despite the fact that you have osteoporosis, osteoporosis is not something that is, um, it it can be reversible to a degree. And a lot of the types of exercises that we recommend for osteoporosis are things like weight-bearing exercises. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, running is great. Uh, You know, doing some weight training is also excellent for bone mineral density. Um, And also really just keeping up some type of cardiovascular exercise also has huge benefits because we do know that women are at increased risk for cardiovascular disease as well after menopause. Right. And actually, I was reading a study on uh, just 20 minutes of high-intensity interval training is great for uh, for menopausal women. It's intense, but it's short, and uh, it gives you enough of that cardio without and the weight bearing stuff a combination of all of that so if anybody wants to look into the hit h-i-i-t uh training i I think it's great and it doesn't take too much uh too much time so uh, agreed and everyone lives their life you have to fit in the workout wherever you can and h-i-i-t training is excellent for that right good uh here's another question for you dr lee what are the safest massage oils that are vagina friendly and which are to be avoided? Now, I can answer that too, but you, I want to hear what you have to say as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of varying opinions on this. Um, in general, you know, I am sure people have heard time and time again that the pH of your vagina and the whole microbiome of your vagina is a very sensitive environment. So ultimately, anything you introduce down there is going to affect that potentially. Um, and that can predispose you to things like yeast infections or a bacteria or a BB. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I, I think that, you know, some safe ones I tend to recommend to patients are honestly the typical um, lubricants that are uh, on the market for traditionally sexual intercourse. I think those ones are tested and uh, FDA yeah. approved for use in that region. Um, to be honest, I can't really quite comment on other things like uh, more natural oils. Like I've heard of coconut oil and um, mm-hmm. other things like that. But I, there's just isn't great evidence as to um, the efficacy of those. Right. Um, although something we do recommend to patients is olive oil is typically safe to use down there. So if olive oil is safe to use, so coconut oil would, would be too. And I know a lot of people have used coconut oil. I use coconut oil to take off eye makeup. So you can imagine near the eyes, which would sting, it has no effect at all, right? So uh, it seems pretty safe. There is a company called Good Clean Love that um, makes products that have no scent and and none of that stuff and and, um, natural uh, products. The problem with massage oils uh, is that, yes, you're using them on the rest of your body. They have a lot of scents to them, right? They're nice and soothing smells of lavender and whatever else you want that are, are would not be vagina friendly because you don't want those uh you don't want to put anything perfumed there that would increase uh, the risk i would imagine for sure definitely avoid fragrances in the region right so go with uh, olive oil or coconut oil even olive oil you'll smell nice <laughs> you'll smell like a good <laughs> salad uh okay i what did women do before there were hormone meds for menopause it seems nature itself has been successful in itself for a very long time okay women didn't live past menopause in a, way back then <laughs> that might be the reason i don't know I don't even know. I, I think, yeah, <laughs> I think you can apply that statement across all areas of medicine. Um, I think it's, you know, it's just about improving quality of life. That's a huge part of what hormone replacement therapy is. And, you know, I think that we didn't have all the medical treatments and therapies available to us now. And back then, perhaps they just kind of, you know, kind of suffered sucked through it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we, it up. exactly. <laughs> women back then sucked it up and then there was hormone therapy and women were like, yay. And then, and now we're back <laughs> to sucking it up again, uh, frankly. <laughs> and myself and my friends were all like, uh, you know, it's a tough choice to make and uh, you suck up the effects, you know, and it's, uh, it, it can be a, uh, unpleasant but if it's tolerable they say don't go on uh, on hormone replacement if you can tolerate uh the the hot flashes and and what have you so uh, uh yeah i don't i don't envy you as a doctor having to discuss this with people and them having to make a choice and it's a hard choice because if they make one choice and something happens then it's like uh you know <laughs> Exactly. I mean, hormone replacement is uh, definitely not without side effects, and it's not an option for everyone. Some people have contraindications where it's just uh, purely not an option for them. So um, I think it's great to have uh, it as a choice that people can make for themselves. But really, you're right. Like the main um, symptoms that we where it's indicated for would be things like hot flashes or um, sometimes more localized estrogens for vaginal dryness. Yes, the vaginal dryness, the the night sweats, the hot flashes, all of those things can be super uncomfortable. But the, but for the vaginal dryness, and we could talk about this later, uh, there are also some great remedies for that where you don't have to take uh, hormone uh, replacement. So we'll talk more with Dr. Angela Lee, our uh, resident 
resident in obstetrics and gynecology for the Vagina Dialogues here. We've got lots more questions to get to. Passion with Dr. Lori Batito on CJAD 800. So happy to see that our listeners are taking advantage of Dr. Angela Lee's expertise as a resident in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Toronto. She focuses on sexual health and family planning and answers your questions 514-800 to send them in. Uh, Is there any, this one I think I'll, I'll take, but is there any research that shows that there are more divorces during and after menopause? Uh, So I don't know if it's quite related to menopause, but I've certainly read enough things about the silver divorce or, or the 27 year itch, which kind of would fit with menopause time. (laughs) So, but I don't think it has anything to do with menopause itself and maybe more to do with uh, some midlife uh, empty nest and realizing that all you, everybody's out of the house and you find yourself with a partner who you feel you barely know and maybe you've spent so much time focusing on the kids that and not enough time on the relationship and and so we are seeing divorces in that age category absolutely I'm just not so sure it's it's just menopause related. Sometimes it has to do with low libido and and desire differences that we can see in couples in later life, but then I see that same with men and women. So I don't want to I can't blame menopause for for all that stuff. I don't know if you, anything you wanted to add to that Dr. Lee. <laughs> I I think you pretty much covered it. Um I can't profess that at my current age, I know a lot about that era of life, but um, yeah, it will <laughs> defer to you. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you are quite young, and that's wonderful because we love to get a different perspective. Um, I this person writes, "Hi, I was curious because sometimes when I have an intense orgasm, my ears start ringing and I kind of go deaf for a couple of seconds. Do you have any thoughts as to why?" Yeah, um, that's actually a really interesting point that you bring up. So orgasm is actually an event that we like to think of as being centered in the brain. Um, It's typically uh, triggered by genital stimulation and sexual stimulation, but um, there are a lot of different things that can trigger orgasm. And we know that when you orgasm, you release really high levels of two hormones, oxytocin and prolactin. Um, and those are part of what contribute to some of the um, vaginal and pelvic floor contractions that cause the sensation. But that could also explain part of why you're having the sensation of hearing loss is because it's basically an explosion of activity in the brain. It also, uh, one of the uh, symptoms of arousal or, or uh, orgasm is a congestion you can get nasally congested. So when your sinuses fill up, it can affect your ears as well. So there's that, there's that, but I don't think that's anything to really worry about. Um, Yeah, I don't think so. Another uh, texter writes, why does my girlfriend say her vagina is too sensitive to touch? What could that be? I mean, that's not much information to go on, I get, but yeah, I mean, um, it's kind of a, a broad statement, but I think uh, there are a variety of different things that could cause it. So, um, I mean, one possible cause is if she has um, something, uh, a yeast infection or something that's causing a bit of irritation down in the vulvar area. Um, another really common condition that people have is uh, vaginismus, which is basically involuntary, um, very strong contractions of the pelvic 
uh, floor muscles that make it very difficult to have um, things like vaginal penetration comfortably. Right. So depending on what she means by sensitive, it, it, those are kind of two of the things that come to mind. But, um, you know, it, it's a sensitive area. I think that is also a very normal statement to make. Right. That also, uh, like women have complained too that, let's say, after they've had an orgasm, their their clitorises and, and that area becomes too sensitive to touch. So I don't know if it's the congestion and then, you know, once they get to that point, then it's like, okay, now it, now the, it, it goes from pleasure to pain very quickly. For sure. And there's so many nerve endings, particularly in that region, that after something like an orgasm where they've all just been fired off, it's very normal for, for that area to be particularly sensitive. Right. So the best thing and I, for the best advice is find out what, what kind of touch is less sensitive to her and find out how she likes to be touched. If you want to, you know, this is how you become a a good lover. You check with your partner, you find out what they like and you, uh, you work around that. So uh, I'm sure you'll be able to find ways to, um, you know, to give her pleasure as well. Uh, Here's another question for Dr. Lee. Uh, Hi, Dr. Lee. My 43-year-old wife seems to be in perimenopause state, and she is seriously considering HRT. She has much trouble sleeping due to night sweats or hot flushes, although she gets them at various times during the day, but it really affects her sleep and mood. My question is, I'm looking for a Christmas present that might be able to bring her relief and permit her to sleep. We tried cool pillows, fans, etc., but nothing helps. Any ideas? Well, as a woman going through that exact same thing right now, I can tell you I sleep with the windows wide open, uh, and I freeze, and I get hot, and I freeze, and I get hot. It's not pleasant, but I can't think of anything else to do. So if you have any relief for all of us ladies going through this, please, what would it be? Christmas present. Um, You know, I... (laughs) A lot of those things that you mentioned are great, like an electrical fan that they can just carry around with them, mm-hmm. you know, a small one that they can carry in their pocket discreetly and just pull out to use whenever they need, because you never know when those hot flashes are oh, going yeah. to come. Oh, yeah, and um, dress differently. I dress in layers. I wear my summer clothes and then a sweater on top of it. So always in a short, in a, no, a sleeveless and something over it because you're constantly taking off and putting on. Keep a, tell her to keep an elastic band around her uh, wrist so she can put her hair up. <laughs> that helps as well. And there's, cool, there's these cooling scarves that you soak in water and you wring them out and then they stay cool so you can keep them there. And then my husband bought me a fan that plugs into my iPhone. So that, that also is a fun little a gadget that could be useful <laughs> to her. So <laughs> uh, I, really, if anybody can think of other things, I'd like to know too. So uh, let us know, please, at 514-800. But thank you for taking care of and wanting to give her relief. That's really, that's very sweet and loving and supportive. And that's from a husband that understands clearly. Yeah. That's (laughs) amazing. And that's good. Exactly. And not just complaining about his wife's moods. Right. Um, so the person wrote back about, um, the, the perimenopause and the weight gain and is the weight gain during perimenopause or after menopause? I, I would imagine that as your estrogen, oh, and she says the gyno has confirmed perimenopause with my FSH levels. So as it's going down, it's probably happening at the same time, right? 
Yeah. So menopause happens gradually. It's not sort of like a one day you're not in menopause, the next day you officially are. Um, It's a very gradual process that your body goes through as the ovaries slowly um, produce less and less estrogen. So I think, you know, from the time that process essentially starts to happen, you can sort of expect those changes in your, your metabolism that account for much of the weight gain that you experience. Right. Unfortunately, we all pretty much go through it. Sometimes you just have to up the exercise and reduce the amounts that you eat. So you might have been eating, you know, this way for a very long time and not gain weight. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you realize, oops, you're gaining weight. So we have to kind of adjust to that. And finally, mm-hmm. last question. Uh, my fiance, 43, her period is three weeks long. Should we be concerned? I'm not, so, I, yeah, that's just a one-off yeah. thing, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I'm happy you brought that up because, um, you know, for women who are over the age of 40 and have what we call abnormal uterine bleeding, meaning, and I think having a period that lasts up to three weeks falls in that category, yeah. it definitely warrants a visit to your doctor um, and consideration potentially of an endometrial biopsy. So what that is, is they just essentially put a little straw um, up through your cervix and take a sample of the inner lining of the uterus. Um, And it's basically an important step in just ruling out potential, um, you know, abnormal changes to the cells in the lining of your uterus. So I'm glad you brought that up. And I definitely think it does warrant at least an evaluation by her doctor to um, see uh, if there might be a, a cause other than uh, being in the perimenopausal period, because that is oftentimes it's benign, but it's sort of you just want to rule out those kind of scary possible um, sources of that type of bleeding. Right. Uh, so one person said that they heard uh, Dr. Lucy Gilbert on the radio and and said menopause doesn't cause weight gain; it is food calories in and calories out. Yes, but you have to have less calories in and more calories out no during menopause right yeah exactly like you know we don't really realize it but the majority of our calorie expenditure is through our basal metabolic rate exercise and those things only makes up a very small proportion of it so unfortunately when that goes down you kind of have to adjust accordingly exactly as you said either by decreasing the intake or increasing the output Right. Um, this person is 45, had a hysterectomy, but still has one ovary. What can uh, she expect for perimenopause? So you can expect um, pretty similar changes to women who have not been through a removal of uh, their uterus or their other ovary, because that ovary was still functioning and producing um, exactly. enough estrogen for you. So I, I think in terms of like the symptoms of the hot flashes and you know, vaginal dryness, a lot of that will be very similar. Right. And uh, we should say not all women experience all these symptoms. Some of us are unfortunate to have them all and others, uh, you know, will not have so many hot flashes, will not have the night sweats. And some people will have them for years and years and years. So there's no telling what the hell is going to be, but whatever. You just take care of yourself as much as possible. Dr. Angela Lee, such a pleasure having you on. I truly hope you will join us month after month and be our expert on vaginal and female sexual health from here on in. (laughs) Loved having you. 
Thank you so much for having me on tonight. Right. It was a pleasure. Thank you. So I put her on the spot. She can't say no now. Um, that is Dr. Angela Lee of the University of Toronto. Thank you so much for all of your questions. Loved having them all. Again, she will join us next month and you can have those questions answered uh, then. Thank you to our technical producer as well, Dave Simon. You can connect with me on social media at Dr. Lori Batito or through my website, drlori.com, where the podcasts of all past shows are uploaded. They're there for you to, to download and listen at your leisure. Of course, if you have the iHeart app, you just go to the CJD page and our podcasts will be there as well. Coming up next here on CJD, we bring you this CTV National News. Have a great rest of the evening. Stay safe and remember to live your life with passion. <laughs>